Well, let's find our way back to the book of Philippians. Anybody need an outline? Uh, Vanna White will be coming down the aisle to hand up. What's that? There's just one page. Yeah. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 is where we have uh, left off. You can find your way there to Philippians chapter 2. One of the things that we've talked about recently uh, in Sunday school, almost as a passing comment, not as a really something that's come directly out of the text, is the fact that we live in, say it with me, the state of Texas, the south, the the, the end of the Bible Belt, whatever you want to call it. And, and you've, you've heard me talk about uh, the adjustments I had to make being a California out here and changes and all of that sort of thing. Um, but in reality, um, the fact that we live in a Christian culture, if I can call it that, um, presents its own case of particular challenges as we think about doing the work of the ministry here. Uh, we are called as a church to go out these walls today and to evangelize the lost, right? Would you agree with me on that? We're supposed to go out and preach the gospel to all the nations. Uh, go, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, Jesus said in the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28. The problem is... In a Christian culture, and then some of you even mentioned it in your prayer requests this morning, in a Christian culture, you might go up to somebody and say something like this, Hey, my name's Keith. Um, John, it's nice to meet you, John. Uh, do you know Jesus Christ? And they say, Why, yes, I do. I grew up in the church. I've always known about him. I've heard about him. I went to Umpty Dump Baptist Church in, you know, Podunk, Texas, and right, and, and, right, I've, I've known Jesus all my life. I've got a Bible, and I, I go to church Sunday. But as one of you alluded to in your prayer requests, uh, many people who grow up in the church, they grow up with Jesus, and they could even recite Bible verses and things like that. As you get to know them, you can't find Jesus anywhere in their lives. Uh, maybe they go to church, maybe they don't. But, but if, if what Jesus says is true in Matthew chapter 7, that you will know them by their fruits... And it's not the one who just says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, that's going to be saved, but the one who does the will of the Father, again, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. Um, if that's true, then it is not sufficient to just know about Jesus or talk about Jesus or know some Bible verses or profess that you're a Christian. The, the, the criteria at the end of the day is, is there evidence in your life that you are truly converted? Now, we understand, as Terry's been reminding us in, in John, in, as he's gone through the book of First John, that evidence does not save you, right? The works do not save you. But those evidences, the fruit, in fact, validates or authenticates or proves that your faith is really real. And uh, you remember what James says in James chapter 2, that faith, if it has no works, is what? It's dead, right? So, So what do we do? How do we... And I hope you think about this. I think about this all the time. Um, I had a chance to talk to someone this week who I don't, I'd never met before, and I didn't know if they were a Christian or not. Try to strike up a conversation, try to move the conversation toward spiritual things, and and I'm all, and just it bugs me. How do you how do you break through this Christian culture where everybody says, "Well, I'm a Christian," and and you know that everybody's not. 
You've heard me say before, you don't say liar, you know, and you don't, I mean, that's not the right approach. There needs to be a strategy. There needs to be a way that we go about evangelizing so that we get past the sort of Christianese of the culture to, to the realities of what really matters, and that is, is, is that person really clinging to Jesus Christ alone for their salvation? And if that's true, is there evidence in their life that they really are converted? This feels like Christianity 101, but, but a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ... Write this down now. Follows Christ. They walk in the same manner as he walked. They, they do what he would do. They, they want to honor him. They want to please him. They, they love him supremely. They're not perfect. We understand that. There, there's, there's no perfection here. There's no the side of heaven perfection. But th- there's a striving. There's a desire. There's fruit. There's evidence. And we've been talking about that in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. There's this pro- progressive work of sanctification in the life. But, but I come back to the issue. How do we break through the Christian culture? How do we get through to show people that what they think is Christianity, that they think they've embraced, is in fact not true Christianity? How do you get to the place to, to, to where they see that they've been deceived? It's very hard to help somebody to know that they've been deceived because when you're deceived, you usually don't know it, Right? How do you do that? Well, I think one of the ways, one of the strategies that will help to overcome this Christian culture, to break through the Christianese of of Granbury, of Hood County, Texas, to where we can actually minister the gospel to somebody, um, is found in our little section this morning that we're going to look at in Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 to 16. Yes, sir. Yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm not a fanatic. Yes. Yes, that's telling, isn't it? So look with me at this little section here, and and let's see if, if we can find in it some wisdom for addressing the dilemma that I described. Now, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this, wrote to a very different culture. The church was very, very young in the faith. So, so he's not writing to a culture similar to ours in the, in the sense that there is a Christian culture. But what he is writing to in terms of his audience is a very religious audience. You've got, tell me, tell me about the culture. Just, just maybe we can get some hands up here. Tell me about the culture in which Paul is writing in the Philippians. It's not a Christian culture like we think of the South in, in the United States of America, but it is a religious culture. And what is it like? What is Paul's culture like? This is the part where you talk. Okay, there are other gods. Okay, so, so tell me, what, what, what is the main sort of polytheistic worldview of the day going on in, in Paul's day, first century Palestine area? What is it? Well, again, if we're talking about the Gentiles, then every group has its own God, and um, you're, you're praying to that God basically to uh, make life better for you. Okay. Yeah, you, you've got uh, in the past this huge 
religious system that comes out of the Greek culture, right? And then more in Paul's day, that is transitioning to the Roman version of that religion, where you have all these different deities, all these different gods. It's a very pagan religion. Um, and you guys remember from your mythology classes growing up that, you know, you got the Greek gods and the Roman gods, and they all have names, and we've named some of our planets after them. You understand that, okay? That's the culture of the day. There's temples, there are rituals, there are sacrifices. It's very religious. And, and in the middle of that, if you can think kind of right as the center point of that, you got all this polytheism around it. Right in the middle, you've got the heart and soul of Judaism, right? You've got Jerusalem with the temple, with all of the things that go along with the nation of Israel, the Jewish people. People and the nation or and the religion of Judaism. Okay, so this is a very religious culture, very different than ours, right? It's, it's not the Christian culture like ours, but it's very religious. And and what part of Paul is going to what that didn't come out right? Uh, part of what Paul is going to address here is how you influence that culture. How do you become an example for that culture? How do you stand out to say, you know what? I know you're real religious, but you bought into a lie. How are you going to do that? It's something that you and I probably wouldn't have guessed. At least I wouldn't have guessed it. Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Here it is. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Stop right there. Isn't that radical? You want to stand out in a crowd? You want to be a fanatic? Do you want to be countercultural? Watch this. Stop grumbling. Get along. Be, let's be a body where we, even though we're very different, and we don't always agree, and we have different backgrounds and different talents, and, and, some of us are different as night and day. But that very diverse group of people comes together around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we set aside those differences for unity in Christ and we strive for um, a contentment amongst one another and, and getting along and agreeing. And What happens when we do that? Look at the next verse so that you may prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach, watch this now, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. I have a confession for you. When I'm complaining about something... I don't usually think that I'm demeaning the gospel, but I am. Look at your notes with me. We're going to call this... Um, Dave, is that receiver plugged in? Just go, just slide, please. Just go ahead and hit the, the thing there and we'll... There you go, just right there, perfect. We're going to call this validating the gospel, if we can call it that. Because Paul's whole argument here is that we should do what he's telling us to do, which is not grumble and complain, because we are called to be a light to the world. 
Um, we read this morning how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is he to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and whose spirit there is no deceit. So follow me here. What does it say about the gospel? What does it say about what Jesus really did when we complain? Isn't that convicting? Everybody complains. Have you seen the traffic on 377 lately? Who wouldn't complain? College football started yesterday, which means we have grumblers and complainers in our midst this morning, right? Right? We don't have to go very far to recognize that we all grumble and complain about something. And uh, before we're done this morning, hopefully we'll see a little bit of why that is such a bad thing. But let's go ahead and unpack the text. Go ahead and hit the slide there, uh, Dave, please. Try, try the clicker again. There we go. All right. Yeah, real simple. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. The word grumbling means murmuring. It's, it's, it's grumbling under your baby. And you know exactly what that is. It's, it's, it's what you say uh, under your breath when you're in traffic in the car. It's what you say to your children when they don't obey you. It, it's, it's what you say as you're driving away from a... A particularly busy day at the mall or in line at Walmart. It's it's what you do when you come away from a hard conversation with a friend or with an adult parent that you're caring for, and, and there's issues going on. And it's grumbling, it's complaining, it's murmuring. And the word translated there, disputing, really just means conflict, interpersonal conflict. And, and notice, and this is, uh, man, the Bible just lays it down, doesn't it? How many things are we supposed to do without grumbling or disputing? Isn't that hard? You say, to grumble is human. Yes, but to grumble is sinful. Um, if, if you're a parent, and, and some of you are in the same season of life that I'm in, this is one of the first verses I had my children memorize. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Great, great parenting verse there. <laughs> However, we found that um, as children get older, if we've been faithful to help them to memorize Scripture, they will use that verse against you. But, Mommy, the Bible says... Oh, yeah. Who taught you that? Oh, yeah. Okay. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Uh, we know that. It's hard, but we know that, don't we? Grumbling is when there is something that has happened, there is something that has gone on, and we are not happy with it. Grumbling is, is low-level anger. If, if you turn on the fire on the, on the range and you've, you've, the water's boiling and then you turn the fire down so it's just kind of simmering. Grumbling is like simmering in anger. It's not boiling over. That, that's thumos. That's rage. That's wrath. It's low-level anger. It's, it's the first stage, if you will, of anger. And grumbling may or may not have an audience. Sometimes we like to grumble to other people, right? Sometimes we just grumble even though there's no... It's like, who are you talking to? I don't know, but I'm grumbling, right? I just, there's nobody there. Conflict, however, disputing 
is intrinsically interpersonal. So there's always another party involved in that second word there, disputing. So do all things without grumbling when I'm not happy about something and now I'm complaining about it and disputing. I'm disagreeing with some other person and now I'm engaged in a conflict with them. I'm, I'm arguing for my way. I'm, I'm trying to show them that they're wrong and while well, I'm right. You know, um, I didn't really plan this, but we talked about anger last week. And everything that we talked about with anger really applies to grumbling because grumbling is sort of the, not maybe not always the first indication, but grumbling is one of the first indications that anger has taken root in the heart. So let's dissect this just for a second. Um, what is behind the sin of grumbling? If you're, if you're grumbling and you catch yourself and you think, why am I doing this? Okay, you're not getting something you want. Someone said selfish in the back. Okay, good. What's that? You're discontent. Sure. Um, who is grumbling directed against? How's it directed at God? He's the creator of all things, including our situation. Okay. But what if I'm grumbling at the guy driving in front of me? You know, the sign says 55. He thinks he's in a parade. Okay? So, <laughs> um, what does God have to do with that? It's the driver. Right? It's, right? So what does God have to do with that? Okay, so so what you're saying is the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, is is witnessing our grumbling. Okay, good. But what is what does God have to do with the guy who's not driving the way I think he should drive on my road in front of me in the in the what? Are you telling me God is sovereign over that guy? Are you sure? That challenges my theology. No, you know you're right. You're right. Because all sin ultimately terminates, well, I'll say it like this, all sin is, is ultimately against God. You may sin against a person. I, I, I may be getting angry at the guy driving in front of me, and I'm, I'm sinning against him. But remember what David says in his, the parallel psalm, we didn't read it this morning, Psalm 51, against you. And you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And we say, you just killed a man. How can sin be against you, God, only? Well, he's not saying that killing Uriah wasn't a bad thing or committing adultery with Bathsheba wasn't a bad thing. Of course he sinned against them. What he's saying is there is that God is, is the party that is chiefly offended in every sin. He is, he is the primary party who is sinned against in every sin. Now, if God does really control everything in the universe... And he does. And if his ways are good, he's working all things together for good to those who love God. That's Romans chapter 8, uh, verse 28-29. Then what Kit said is absolutely true, that God is sovereign over that driver in front of me or over that child that doesn't obey or over that guy at work that I can't get along with or over the circumstance that I don't like or whatever it is. What are you grumbling about? God is sovereign over that. So if that's true... 
And if he really is working all things together for good, what I am saying in the moment of grumbling is, God, I don't like what you're doing. I don't think you got it right. I think I have a better way. Yeah, right. Things all around you, and yet you can't notice those because it's because you spill coffee down in front of your shirt on the way right. to church. Right. Right. <laughs> Not that that happens. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's true. You, you can't you can't be grumbling and thankful at the same time. So in that moment, you are in a sense having to live like all those other blessings don't exist in that moment. Yeah, Rich. You know, one of you mentioned last week uh, when I when I did that very risky Sunday school move called letting you guys pick the example that we talk about um, Sunday school unscripted, right? Um, and One of the reasons that we are losing the culture battle is because we're using the wrong weapons. And we think that the weapons of grumbling and complaining against political leaders, laws, movements, whatever, that those are somehow going to, you know, we're going we're gonna to win people to what is right by grumbling and complaining about them. Yeah? Really? You know, a, a moment's reflection, we go, well, of course not. That's a dumb strategy. Who came up with that? But that's that's why Paul is so adamant here. Because we just think grumbling, complaint, that's just what we do. That's just part of being conservative, or it's part of being a Christian, or it's part of, you know, what have you. But but there's a different strategy. And and like like all like all ministry, we have to win the battle in here first in order to be effective for gospel ministry. You say, I'm not sure I I agree with that. Well, don't take my word for it. Paul told Timothy that it is the sanctified vessel that is useful to the master. Right? That God does care about who I am in here. He does care about the battles in here. Because those, what is going on in me in terms of my character, in terms of my life and my walk with the God, walk with God, qualifies me for ministry or disqualifies me from ministry. It makes me effective or it makes me ineffective. 
So those are those are good points. So do all things without grumbling or, or disputing. But again, you know, whereas I just want to, you know, if I'm using that to my kids, it's like, see, God said it, so be quiet, right? Don't don't stop. But that's not where that's not where the Bible goes. The Bible goes to a place that hurts a lot more than you just shouldn't do that because it's wrong. Let's listen to where the Bible goes. So that this is this is the purpose clause here. This tells us the reason why we shouldn't grumble or complain. Paul's going to say because you have something to prove. You do have something to, sometimes we say that to people, you know, you just have something to prove because they're being prideful about something, okay? And obviously that's a, that's a bad uh, way to go about proving something. But do you know, as believers, we do have something to prove? As a Christian, we do have something to prove. And, and Paul's whole approach here is to say, Christian, you have to prove something to the unbelieving culture around you. Well, what is that? Look what he says. So that you may prove, literally you may become, look at the first part, blameless and innocent. And the words mean just what they sound like in English. Blameless. You're above someone finding fault. You're innocent. You're not corrupt. You're not in the midst of... um, all the guiltiness and vileness that goes with sin, you're innocent of those charges, so to speak. Blameless and innocent. It speaks really to our character. Secondly, that we prove that we are children of God who are above reproach. You say, well, yeah, but... but the church is for sinners, right? We, we, you know, we come to Christ because we're sinners in need of a Savior. That's true. That's absolutely true. And we never, certainly never lose sight of that. But it is the transforming work of God in the heart that authenticates the reality of our conversion. Anybody can say, I'm a Christian. Anybody can say, I know Jesus. And can say whatever they say. Talk is cheap. Right? It is not those who say that they're Christians, according to Jesus. It's those who do the will of the Father. Many will say on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do all this ministry in your name? And he says on that, on that day of judgment, depart from me. I never knew you. So we have something to prove. We, how we live proves that the gospel is real. That's what he's saying. How we live proves that the gospel is real. If all the unbelieving world does when they look at the church is see... A bunch of people that get together on Sundays, they don't like to go play golf, they get together on Sunday, I don't get that. And and yeah, maybe, maybe they have a particular political view, maybe they have particular morals. But Christians are known as grumblers. Christians are known as people that can't get along. In a little, you know, I read the headline in the church, there's 30 people in this little Baptist church, and the church split. Why? Because they couldn't get along. They were arguing about what color to paint the walls. Really? Yes, that happens. 
So you're telling me you can't get along with 30 other people, but you supposedly have a message about unbelievers and God being reconciled? You're going to talk to me about reconciliation and you can't get along with three or six or 30 people? Really? Do you see the problem? We talked about this a few weeks ago. That gets played out in family too, doesn't it? Families of believing, professing believers that don't get along. Marriages of professing believers who divorce. And we're going to talk to them about how God and sinners can be reconciled. No wonder they don't take us seriously, right? Did you see the problem? How we live authenticates the gospel. And specifically what Paul is saying is when we do things, when we do life without grumbling, without disputing, not because we're all the same, but because we strive uh, for harmony and unity with one another, not because everything in life goes great, but because we find things to praise God for in the midst of the thing not going the way we want to go. That says Christianity is different. It's real. Because it really does change lives. That's what Paul's going to say. He says, you have to prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God, above reproach. There's a term. Above charge. That means your life is so consistent that were someone to bring a charge against you, everybody that knew you would say, well, we know that's not true. Because of, because of the, the, how we live. Now watch how he connects this to our testimony to the world. In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And again, those words mean just what they sound like they mean. Uh, crooked. They're not straight. They're, they're, they're not honest. They're not moral. They're crooked. They're deceitful. Perverse generation. Do we need to talk about that? We live in a perverse generation. It was true in Paul's day. It's true in our day. It's perverse. It's not getting better. It's getting worse. And God, and God tells us through this text that we have to prove ourselves to be blameless and innocent and children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. When the church becomes like the world, we lose all influence. Because there's nothing compelling. There's nothing different. There's nothing to say, oh, yeah, you know. And, and you know what's crazy? Just a footnote on this. There's a whole strategy out there of how to do church that's all about making unbelievers feel comfortable, being as much like unbelievers as possible so that they'll want to come to our church. Do you see the problem with that? When we become like the world, either intentionally as an evangelism strategy, which doesn't make any sense, or just through our own foolish living, just because we don't really make following Christ a priority, because it's not really a priority to us, we lose our influence. And what Paul's going to say here is that we are called to be lights in the world. We're called to be uh, that light on a hill, that 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 beacon that says this is where the land is this is reality this is truth this is what's really real makes us think of matthew 5 right let your light so shine before men in such a way that men will see your 
What's the next phrase? Your good works. How you live, right? Your character. It's the same stuff he's talking about here. How you live. What your character is like. What your priorities are. Let your light shine in such a way that men will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Where's the light? Where's the light in your life? Where's the light in your marriage? Where's the light in your family? Where's the light here? Are we being a light to Granberry? I hope we are. I think by God's grace, we are. But we can just do better. Because this, this is not like a one-time, okay, we're a light, great, check that box. This is like if, if we don't intentionally pursue what he's saying to do here, that light fades over time. And, and this, I don't think it's, it's ironic at all that I was talking to someone this week about um, a bad church experience, and their bad church experience led them to stop going to church. Because often what destroys churches is when we engage in Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. We grumble and we complain. We grumble and we can't get along. We grumble and we fight. And I don't know if it burdens you like it burdens me. When churches split, when God's people can't work things out, If you miss everything else today, remember this. When we grumble, we tell the world around us that the gospel is a lie. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may prove yourself to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. Here's, here's a great, maybe just kind of personal evaluation before we move on from this point. If, if I were to go and interview your neighbors, what would they think about the light emanating from your home? Not, not like incandescent or compact fluorescent or LED, no, but just spiritual light. If, if you had the ability to interview your employees or your people, your coworkers about yourself and, and just, would there be any light? Would, would they say, yes, there's something different. There's something compelling. There's something, and not like, you know, they don't like my music. You know, they don't go out and drink on Friday nights. Not, not like that stuff, but like there, there's, there's something about how they live that is attractive, that is different, that is above reproach, that, that, that shows me that maybe this God they keep talking about is real. We need to evaluate our lives and our homes and our marriages and our families. Um, We all have areas of our life, if we're honest, where we're grumbling and we're disputing and and, and we are de-authenticating the gospel as we do. You say, but, but Keith, but no one can be perfect, right? No one can, can do all things without grumbling or complaining. No one can do that perfectly. That's true. 
part of how we authenticate Christianity is when we end, and what do we do about it? Do we get defensive? Do we pretend like we're not really as bad as we are? Do we blame other people? Or do we do what David did in Psalm 32 as we read this morning and we humble ourselves, broken over our sin, ask for forgiveness, and with his grace work on transformation and change? See, even that authenticates the gospel. Even when we, we know we can't be perfect, right? Of course we can't be perfect. But what do we do when we blow it? How we respond when we fall into sin authenticates the gospel too. Paul continues. Continuing in the faith. Literally, he says, holding fast the word of life. That, that's where all the stories about, you know, I was raised in the church, I made a profession of faith when I was four. I'm a Christian. I don't go to church. There's no evidence in my life that I love God or that spiritual things are a priority. I don't live any differently than the world. I don't sound any differently than the world. That's what he's talking about there. When you fall away, when you don't hold fast the word. Uh, Terry's going to get to this um, in uh, in first... Actually, I guess he already covered it. Um, In in 1 John 2 where he says, uh, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. In fact, they went out from us and, and departed to show that they were never really of us. When people leave the faith, when they leave the church, it shows that their faith was never really genuine, assuming that they never come back. So holding fast the word of life. And he's going to give one more reason. Why should we do all things without grumbling or disputing? The first reason is because we have something to prove. It, it authenticates the gospel message. It, it validates the gospel in, in a world that says... Christianity has been, it's been rejected, and we've moved on to other things. Have you noticed that? That's exactly what our, our nation has done. We've tried Christianity, it doesn't work, so we've moved on to other, other better things. So how do we show them it's real? That's how we show them it's real. By being a light, by living above reproach, and continuing in the faith. But there's another reason that we should do all things without grumbling or disputing. This, this is interesting, and I personalized it for our purposes. Listen to what Paul says in verse 16. Holding fast the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that means when, when Christ returns and he, he does what, what theologians call the Bema Seat judgment, when believers are uh, rewarded in a sense for their deeds, according to 1 Corinthians 3 and 4. Um, so in that day of Christ, I may have cause to glory because I did not run in vain, nor toil in vain. And, you know, this is weird, but this is where Paul goes. Do you, do you know what else? The other reason we, we should not grumble and complain? Paul says to the Philippians, because I desire that my effort, my labor, my ministry to you will yield fruit. He says, on the day of Christ, I, I don't want you guys, Philippians, to be the, the wood, the hay, and the stubble that get burned up in the fire of judgment. I don't want that, he says. So let's personalize that, okay? Raise your hand if you can answer this question. Um, how many of you have Christian men or women that have invested significantly in your spiritual life? Raise your hand. Okay. Put your hands down. That's another reason we shouldn't grumble and complain. 
because some man, some woman, probably several people have invested in you and have invested in me. They have given up time with their family. They have given up financial resources. They have given up their own convenience. They have spent long, I just talk about long hours, patience, answering questions, walking through sin and struggle. Why, why would they do that? Because they love God and they love you. And Paul says, I don't want to get to that day and find out that I ran in vain or toiled in vain. Does that make sense? The work that others have done to build us up in Christ is another reason to not grumble and complain. Um, how many are familiar with Jeremiah Burroughs, the rare jewel of Christian contentment? How many are familiar with that? Uh, Burroughs was a Puritan guy. Uh, you guys understand Puritans are old pastors that live in the 16th century, right? That's all. That's usually what it means. In his book, uh, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, he has two chapters called The Evils of a Murmuring Spirit. And I just want to summarize. I'd encourage you, if you have this, go read those two chapters. I reread them this week. Uh, very helpful, very convicting. Uh, if you are unfamiliar with Burroughs, um, this is... Um, okay, those of you that have read this, is this like a really good book to read? Just Yes? No? Okay, you're not helping me here. I think it's a great book to read. Everybody should read it. Don't listen to that. No, um, no, it, yes, this is, this is probably the finest book on contentment I've ever read. It, it's very, very helpful. Uh, a little bit hard to read at points, as some of the Puritans are. But um, th- this is actually it's a blog post of a guy who basically summarized Burroughs' arguments about grumbling um, from Burroughs' book here. Uh, let me just read you. He, he gives seven evils of a grumbling spirit. These aren't, these aren't on your outline. Just These are for free to listen to. Um, but let, let's think about this in light of what we've heard today. The first reason that Burroughs says that uh, grumbling is evil is because it models Satan. The angel Lucifer was the first grumbler. The onset of his fall from heaven was a result of dissatisfaction with his position and the desire to be like God. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't. I, when I'm driving down the car complaining about somebody in front of me, I'm not thinking that I'm being like Satan, but I am. Listen to Burroughs. The devil is the most discontented creature in the world. He is the proudest creature that is and the most discontented creature and the most dejected creature. Now, therefore, so much discontent as you have, so much of the spirit of Satan you have. Mm, That stings, doesn't it? The second reason Burroughs gives to avoid the evils of a grumbling spirit is it is contrary to who you are. Just listen to this. Here's Burroughs. Are you the king's son? The son, the daughter of the king of heaven? 
and yet so disquieted and troubled and vexed at every little thing that happens, as if a king's son were to cry out that he is undone for losing a toy. What an unworthy thing would this be? So do you. You cry out as if you were undone, and yet you are a king's son. You who stand in such relation to God as to a father, you who dishonor your father in this, as if either he had not wisdom or power or mercy enough to provide for you. Isn't that true? The third reason he gives, because it is the opposite of prayer. It is the opposite of prayer. Burroughs says this, quote, By murmuring, you undo your prayers, for it is exceedingly contrary to the prayer that you make to God. When you come to pray to God, you acknowledge His sovereignty over you. You come there to profess yourselves to be at God's disposal. So you see what he's saying there? By coming to pray to God, I'm acknowledging that He is the sovereign of the universe. So by grumbling, I'm in a sense denying that. Right? Number four, I love this. It's a waste of time. Puritans were so practical, you know? How many times do men and women, when they are discontented, let their thoughts run and are musing and contriving through their present discontentedness and let their discontented thoughts work in them for some hours together? And they spend their time in vain. It's just a waste of time, Burroughs says. Number five, uh, one of you mentioned this when you talked about thankfulness. Number five, it swallows up the blessings of mercy before it arrives. It swallows up the blessings of mercy before it arrives. Listen to to Burroughs again. Discontent and murmuring eats out the good and the sweetness of a mercy before it comes. If God should give a mercy for the want of which we are discontented, and what he's saying is if God were to provide for our needs in some situation that we're troubled with, that's what he means by that. Yet the blessing of the mercy is, as it were, eaten out before we have come to it. There are many things which you desire as your lives and think that you would be happy if you had them. Yet when they come, you do not find such happiness in them but they prove to be the greatest crosses, that just means trials in Puritan language, the greatest crosses and afflictions that you have ever had. And on this ground, because your hearts were immoderately set upon them before you had them. Basically what he's saying is, when you want things too much, because you think they'll satisfy, and then you get them, and then you're disappointed because it doesn't satisfy you that way, then we get all bent out of shape because, in a sense... We were grumbling and complaining by setting our heart on that thing so much as something that would satisfy us, and then we find out it doesn't satisfy us. Number six, it worsens sufferings and affliction. It worsens sufferings and afflictions. Listen to this. It in no way removes our afflictions. Have you found this? Yelling at the guy in front of you who's driving contrary to your wishes doesn't make a lick of difference, does it? You tried that on your kids lately? Or a coworker? Or a spouse? Or a parent? It usually makes things worse. 
Burroughs says it in no way removes our afflictions. Indeed, while they continue, they are a great deal the worse and heavier. For a discontented heart is a proud heart. Ooh, that's true, isn't it? A discontented heart is a proud heart. And a proud heart will not pull down his sails when there comes a tempest and storm. What a picture that is. If a sailor, when a tempest and storm comes, is perverse and refuses to pull down his sails, but is discontented with the storm, is his condition any better because he is discontented and will not pull down his sails? Will this help him? And finally, it wears the hopelessness costume of pessimism. It wears the hopeless costume of pessimism. Consistent pessimism, this is not Burroughs, this is the guy writing the blog that kind of pulled all this together. Consistent pessimism is not in line with the sure hope and life-changing power of the gospel. There is an inherent optimism in the gospel that produces hope, love, joy, and peace. Grumbling reveals that there is a, or when we don't grumble, it reveals that there is a gospel optimism about the Christian life that is the flavor, that is to flavor the personality of a Christian. And Paul's argument in Philippians is that it validates the gospel. It breaks through the Christianese of the culture because there's something different. There's something real. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this verse, these verses that uh, hurt. Uh, They convict. Uh, You have taken the scalpel of your word and have directed our attention to a part of our hearts that we know not only does not honor you, but contributes to the devaluing of the gospel as we seek to minister it to our community. Father, it's true. We, we all grumble and complain. We all struggle to get along. It's, it's true of all of us. Uh, and yet in Christ, we know that we can change, that we can grow, that there ought to be a striving toward blessing instead of cursing, praising instead of grumbling, And Father, maybe, just maybe, that you would be pleased to use that work in our hearts to make the gospel real to those who have long abandoned it or people that think they've embraced it but have not. Father, would you do a work in our church? We want to be a light, not by being the perfect church because we know we can't do that, but by being a real church, by being an authentic church, by being people that are really being conformed and transformed in the image of God. Father, would you give us the grace we need to repent of the sin of grumbling this week and uh, by your grace and enablement turn to honoring you with our lips. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.